Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. My name is Adrian Hobart. And uh, my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following genres. Crime. Mysteries. Thrillers. And suspense. Why, why the... Why am I being sad? Yeah. Because we're home. We're not on holiday anymore. So oh, I'm feeling yeah. very down. Okay. I, I I sometimes wonder whether anyone should go on holiday if you feel down. Oh, it, all it does do is you know, my mother used to say that to me every time we yeah, went well, on holiday. Yeah, well, there you are. I think she's right. <laughs> no. <It's... laughs> Life is all ups and downs. Yeah, more downs than ups. Anyway, welcome to the show. It's show number 85. And our wonderful guest this week is Mark Ellis who is a brilliant author of historical crime fiction. We met him at Crime Fest and uh, we arranged this. We actually spoke to him from his holiday place in France. Yes, I think he was in a more exotic location than we were. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, well, I must admit, it was sort of like a busman's holiday for an interview for me because we just chatted World War II stuff and... I was in my element, wasn't they, I? They, like, yes, they did. And it was one of those interviews where actually I can sit back a little bit because, and I don't mind that because I know it's your, it's your thing, it's your subject. And you were both, you know, getting really quite excited about um, writing fiction from that era. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of kindred spirits, really. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, well, actually, to be fair, I mean, if you reflect on the interviews that we've done over the years, uh, we've done the podcast just over, well, not quite years, but it's, I was gonna say. <laughs> it's a year and a half, year and a half we've been doing this podcast. And, you know, we have those rapports with pretty much everybody we ever speak to, it's, which, it, is, which is wonderful. But on this occasion, I was nerding out a bit. Oh, totally nerding out. It's, it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because I have that feeling every time we take off the headphones and put down the microphones for an interview, we say, that was the best one yet. <laughs> Yeah, like well, every I mean, single you know, one is the best one yet. And if anyone asks us why do you do the podcast, I mean, we did. We were asked that in London Book Fair by by um, you know your, your um, ex colleague, yes. your ex boss, and 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 she um, uh, she asked us what benefit do you get? Actually yeah, what is the business benefit of doing the podcast? Well, there are like there that. are various. I mean, you know, there's no financial benefit from doing the podcast in in uh, yet. There could be. If this podcast becomes big enough, then you know you can make money out of it. There's there's no question about that. But the the, the main benefit, uh, several benefits really, is that you know we're expanding our network of, of people that we know in the industry. We are getting the name Hobeck out there, the Hobcast. We're talking about things. We're refreshing our creative energies and spirits by speaking to people in the industry too. Yeah, and, and we hope that we're bringing you listeners. Um, you know, pleasure while we're doing it. Absolutely. And information. And and being selfish about it, we get pleasure out of it. Oh, we do. And and that was what I was going to come around to say, which was we come away and, you know, it's a highlight of our week when we complete a good interview uh, and we feel that connection. Yeah. Because, you know, we are working uh, within the barn with the cat, with the three kids in the middle of nowhere. 
Uh, and in many ways, during, certainly during lockdown, it was a way out. And you know what? Chit-chatting with you, I quite enjoy that too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, effectively, you listeners are a referee between us <laughs> because we can't misbehave while we're on the podcast. Oh, we do, but we don't put those yeah. ones out loud. No, no. I mean, we did, <laughs> I'd say it was about 18 attempts last week, and that's largely because I was being so, so rotten. But uh, anyway, I, I vow to, to try and be better. Listen, uh, we ought to get into some news, and there is really one dominant story in publishing, uh, the obvious story and the awful story of the attack on Salman Rushdie in New York State uh, earlier this week, just a, two or three days ago as we record this, and where he was attacked by uh, a man of 24 years old. Um, presumably, the, the assumption is, we don't know yet, this was 33 years after the initial fatwa was uh, 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 imposed on Salman Rushdie by the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran uh, that basically said, you know, someone should kill Salman Rushdie for writing the satanic verses. Uh, you know, someone has actually followed through on it. And um, Well, I mean, I think we have to be a little bit careful here. I was reading an article about this this morning mm. and it was The Guardian and they even said allegedly attacked by and I was reading and thinking, but well, uh, they're, they're not witnesses. No, well, they're doing that because, I mean, he's claimed he's not guilty. He's, he's already pleaded not right. guilty. Pleading yeah. not guilty. And they're also saying that because they publish in the United States internationally. So, um, you know, so, okay, I made an assumption there. But I think, I think you know, it's 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 unlikely that we're going to be that far no, out, no. Out, off beam. <laughs> but they're doing, they're, they're couching their, their writing in the... Um, you know, we've all seen the video footage. I mean, someone's <laughs> gone and slashed his neck, stabbed his liver. Um, his eye as well, isn't it? It's his damaged. eye is damaged as well, yeah. Um, but uh, as we uh, speak now, uh, the, the word is that uh, having come off of a ventilator, he's now uh, uh, joking and talking. So yeah, that's a good sign. It is. It's an extraordinary sign. I, I really thought that we would be, you know, I was checking my Twitter feed to see, you know, confirmation that he'd passed away. But at 80 years old, having lived under this fatwa for 33 years, uh, you know, close friends were saying that he'd, he'd almost felt that he had emerged from the other side of it. Well, recently, yeah, not that long ago, we actually made a statement saying, you know, I feel now that I, I can move freely. Mm -hmm. So, Well, look, I mean, you know, it has launched a massive debate, uh, not just about the way that, uh, on the freedom of expression, clearly, and... You know, Salman Rushdie is a uh, a lightning rod for the belief uh, that we support that you should be able to write what you wish to write. And uh, actually, you should have the ability and freedom of speech to perhaps cause offence, but to challenge beliefs and belief systems and all that sort of thing. And therefore, uh, and, and, and not fear reprisals i think of, that's the, the key issue isn't it it's fear it's having being able to speak without fear of your life basically well yeah i think but there, there, there is another element and, and 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 this is where it expands into cancel culture which is coming from a different uh side of the political spectrum you would argue uh cancel culture is i mean in my opinion is driven by the left largely liberal left yeah. liberal left right who are also trying to stop anything that they don't believe, you know, uh, or they they disagree with from being published or being said, and in the way that J.K. Rowling has faced it because of her views on the trans debate. And uh, again, 
you know, again, it's this sort of thing of, you know, we'll, we'll cancel, we won't buy your books, but, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, and now she's actually facing death threats from Iran as well, as someone said yesterday that she's next. So this is a, this is the, the, the debate that we've, we've had recently, and we talked about it with, um, with Malcolm Price last week. Should we, and, and the Anthony Horowitz interview that we, we um, quoted from last week as well, about where's the line? Well, I think also there's a hypocrisy, isn't there? So, you know, pe- people who would put themselves on the liberal left will be deeply shocked by the Salman Rushdie event. Yeah. But because he is putting forward things that they also believe in. Yes. Or, you know, they believe in the freedom of speech, the freedom to challenge religions, that sort of thing. But then it, it is a hypocrisy because you can't then turn around and say that person should be shut up because they are saying things I don't believe in. Yes. Even though I agree with them that some of the things that some of the people they're objecting to... um. I, you know, I share those beliefs, but I don't think you can, you can have the two. You wouldn't take it to the extremes that that are currently. No, not at all. No. In, in the social media, because world. it's freedom. It's freedom of speech. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's, I mean, there's also, I mean, there's been a court case recently which um, has affected my old industry of broadcasting. There's uh, a guy called Alex Belfield. He used to work for the BBC. And Is that Angry Ginger Man? Angry Ginger Man, as you call him. Yeah, we've watched a few of his dreadful videos on on YouTube. But he's just been found guilty of uh, stalking uh, Jeremy Vine and uh, various other offences. Four of them, I think, out of eight charges have been upheld and he's going to get sentenced. And he would argue that he can say anything he likes through freedom of speech. But I would argue the sort of things he was saying was libelous, were libelous and um, were were driven by personal enmity. They weren't... uh, you know, points of belief. No, it's but, not but, political. Know, no, not at all. Not at all. They were they were aimed square, squarely at uh, diminishing the reputation and um, you know and just and inflicting damage on individuals. And um, uh, the, the particular point in case was that he was um, alleging that Jeremy Vine had um, taken public money and and sort of pocketed it. Okay, th- that's very different then, isn't it? Because that's an allegation. Yeah, and it was not true mm. and uh, but he kept propagating it and he's got uh, 300,000 YouTube followers. So there's a certain sector of society who 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 share that view that you should be able to say anything you like. There's a lot of angry people then. But the, there are laws against libel, but also, you know, the the fact is that if you are launching 6,000 tweets against a certain person trolling in an industrial level, the psychological impact that can have on the person involved. And I would say, you know, this is a really tricky subject. And at, at its heart, I mean, the fact why I was different, it's pre-social media days and all that sort of thing. The fact is that social media has created uh, the weapons, mm. the platforms and weapons to propagate lies and to uh, uh, attack individuals in a way that has never been possible before in a way that is actually very hard for the courts to protect an individual's reputation well the problem with law is it has to catch up with changes in society yeah and And it doesn't quite get there just in time so and there's this debate as to whether the platforms themselves who are making millions or billions um from the traffic that goes through them and and let's be honest that 90 percent of it's benign it's just, you know, people putting their cat photos or their meals out or the holiday. That's <laughs> Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. But 
you know, there is no comeback on, on platforms that allow hate and misinformation, lies, uh, malicious lies, I would, I would add, uh, being spread mm. on social media, you know, and the, the level of sort of conspiracy theories that are out there. And it's just turning a society, all of us, into reactionary, you know, the, the sort of people who would, you know, would have gone down the market square and stoned whoever was blasphemed, <laughs> you know. It's, it's that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I feel very uncomfortable with the state of play and this Salman Rushdie thing has really focused minds I think properly on the impact of um, fundamentalism and reactionary behavior on any platform or any conduit it has real world applications and impacts on people and people's health and in Salman's case a very extreme one and, you know, let's not forget this is a guy who spent, what, five years basically hiding from the world? Yeah. Like a literary Julian Assange. You know, no, we knew where he was, but no one knew where Salman was um, as he had to hide from, he, you know, the perceived death squads that were being sent out by Iran to go and bump him off. Um, and, I mean, there are conspiracy theorists who think that this is Iran have a death squad going in America because... Uh, a, a very hawkish right-wing uh, politician or uh, political figure in John Bolton has also had to take cover recently. He's been, um, you know, they think there's someone out trying to get him as well. Now, he's not somebody I hold any political truck with at all, but it, you know, it's a thing. And, um, yeah, I mean, these are these are very difficult times, and we'll continue to talk about it, uh, but we just wanted to make clear, you know, our support for... Mr. Rushdie and his family, and for any author who finds themselves being cancelled, um, you know, I, I, it's just not on. I'm sorry. I mean, you can take a risk, uh, but the fact is that many, many people are now having to change what they're writing, to withdraw what they'd like to express to the world because of their fear of what might happen to them. And that's not right. Well, there's also, whenever things like this happen, it's not that th th these ideas and these uh, desires disappear. They just, the pressure increases and it will come out at some point. The pressure that mm. people put under to edit themselves yeah, absolutely. in some way. So that's what worries me. Totally. Uh, our second news story is, again, it's a tough one, but we're kind of anticipated. And actually, I, I would say that the figure involved is less than I expected. But... Um, from our perspective, about 70% of our books currently, the paperback versions are printed with yeah. Ingram Spark, I would think. It's about that, yeah. Ingram Spark. So they're international. Um, Ingram are a group or an international group, and they were the first people really to make print-on-demand affordable um, in any sort of numbers. Yeah, affordable, easy to use, and universal, I suppose. You know, anybody, any self-published author, anyone who wants to write a book can publish using yeah. England Spark. Well, they've increased their prices. They announced it this week, and uh, they're going up by, what, 4.8%, I yeah, think it was? something like that. Which is not massive, given the amount of inflation there is in the publication market and, no. and the cost of producing copies. But nonetheless, it is a blow to us because, it's, again, that's our margin that shrinks yet further. Well, being very blunt, we there, are, there will be books. We will have to put the price up. Yeah. We can no longer hold them where they are uh, and print them with any, well, 
I mean, you can't, they won't allow you to print negative. No, they don't. They just don't let you. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, we're talking about a few pence now on certain copies and if that. So, so yeah, so I uploaded a book yesterday and um, I, ca- I had the price, this is even before the price increase, so I had the price as it is now. And um, some of the regions, it's less than a pound we get between ourselves and the author. Yeah, well, that's just not sustainable, <laughs> is it? I mean, let's be honest, all that effort. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the retailers will say they're not making much on that if if they're taking the books. And Ingram will say that they've cut their margins to the bone as well. I mean, it's just the fact is that in the UK, the cost of paperbacks, although I appreciate, I really do appreciate that for a lot of people at the moment, a paperback is a truly a luxury at uh, you know eight, even eight pounds or even five pounds in the supermarket that'd be too much for them to, to to bear the fact is that you know the other end is the people making writing the books and publishing the books taking all the risks aren't getting enough in return it's just not worth it i mean you're not selling enough copies uh it's not like you know making two pence on a bottle of ketchup but you're selling several billion a year no certainly not for some a company like us and and what worries me is I'm not talking about us specifically, but there will be a, a smaller range of books available. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting you talk about that because we'll talk about this after the interview because we want to get to the interview as soon as possible. But uh, I have got the bookseller in front of me and they're talking about the Super Thursday, which is coming up on October the 13th in the UK market, which is where the slew of sort of pre-Christmas titles come out, the big ones. Yeah, that's like the sort of you, any a, books after that. Don't bother. For There's Christmas. a September one, but they've actually got a list. They've got they've actually counted up how many hardbacks are coming out between the, uh, September and December in the UK, and I think that figure will surprise you. Okay, I'm I'm intrigued. <laughs> but we need to let's talk to uh, let's talk to Mark Mark Ellis. So uh, I bumped into him in the bar at uh, Crime Fest, and I kind of recognised his face, actually. I'd I'd seen him on the committee of Crime Cymru, um, the the festival that will be held in Aberystwyth in April. He's on the the trustees, I think. Um, He's from Swansea originally. Uh, He went into... uh, He he went to Cambridge University, became a lawyer, a barrister, in fact. And then after that... Went into merchant banking, as he explains. Yeah. And after that... He was an entrepreneur. In computing and made his money there, sold his company, and that gave him the the capital, really, to just concentrate on his passion for writing. And he uh, created a series of uh, fantastic books, initially self-published, actually. Yeah, and yeah. got attention of, uh, of uh, Headline. Well, it was a small publisher, wasn't it? But they got... Uh, consumed by headline, right. which is Hachette. Hachette yeah, it's part of the Hachette group. And um, he is working on, I think it's book six of yeah, his series. Yeah, I think he said that. So yeah. he's taking us through World War Two, and uh, his main character is Anglo-Spanish uh, detective inspector. I know, he sounds Chief very inspector. dishy. Yeah, he does rather. <laughs> well, we'll, t- we'll find out more about it. But uh, from my perspective, you know, I mean, Mark is a, 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 a is is one of the most respected authors in that field of historical crime fiction, and has um, really established himself. And you know, he takes two 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 and a half years to produce a book. Mm. Takes a lot of time, meticulously researching the period. And what was interesting from this conversation was that Mark's 
ideas change as he does the research. He yeah. finds little snippets that suddenly become great strong pop plot lines of material that you know stories from World War Two that none of us had heard of. Yeah, I mean, he, there was a few things he said in an interview. That I thought I never knew that. I never knew that. Yeah. So it's fascinating. Yeah, and, and um, from my perspective, writing in as we all hear in the interview, you know, I'm talking about what I'm I've, I've been working on. Um, it is. Uh, I feel. I feel a little bit. I did f- feel a touch of imposter syndrome in the sense that I don't spend four months at Q or whatever it might be or online building the world for each year. I'm sort of. I'm retrofitting. I'm writing what I think the story needs and then figuring mm. out whether it fits the facts. And uh, I'm beginning to wonder whether I need to do the other way around. Well, in your defence, though, the way you absorb information is through all the all the sources that you come across, whether it's film, video, mm. reading articles. It all goes in there. Mm. So I would be surprised when you do this retrofitting whether you find that many differences. Well, I'll give you, give you an example. So I, I spent... I spent an enormous amount of time trying to figure out what cigarettes my main character would smoke because mm-hmm. everyone smoked World War Two pretty much, and um, I still haven't got the definitive brand yet. I want something that is exotic enough to give him a bit of cachet. Do you know what? If only our grandparents were still alive. I know. <laughs> well, actually, you know, the fact is that what I'm going to do is I'm going to go down to. Uh, or at least I'm going to contact one of the big tobacconists that still operate in St. James's, <laughs> which is where our, my character would have gone and got his cigarettes from. Without question, he would have got his tobacco from a posh shop in St. James's while he was in London and figure out what, what, what might be unavailable now but was uh, available then if you could pay for it. Yeah. So I think that's the thought. Anyway, let's get into Mark. Let's uh, speak to... Mark Ellis. Mark Ellis, thanks so much for joining us on the Hopcast Book Show. Thank you very much for inviting me, Adrian. And you're in France. Specifically where? Um, I'm in a little place called Gigoreau, which is uh, on the coast in the south of France. Uh, The nearest uh, villages, towns is La Croix-Valmer, La Cavalaire. If you look at the south of France, it's sort of of right in the middle between Italy and Spain. Uh, And... um, we have a house here. We've had a house here for uh, about 10 years. It was a wreck. Uh, it was previously owned by, interestingly, by a moderately well-known painter called Abel Favre. Um, and um, nothing to do with me, but my other half did all the doing up. And it's, it's, it's a little <laughs> bit more comfortable now than it was when we bought it. <laughs> yeah. Sounds blissful. Yeah, especially the, uh, the other half doing it up. Bit, I think I'd need as well. Um, yeah, but I'd need murals and all sorts. Yeah, I would. wouldn't do just plain walls. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> You'd decorate it like Lord Bath. Um, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I'd just I'd do something. Okay, sorry. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. And um, we met uh, for the first time in, in Bristol at Crime Fest uh across Indeed, yeah. a, a crowded bar which uh if you remember right. Oh, when they ran out of beer. Yeah, just <laughs> yes. before it ran out of beer. <laughs> I don't think the vodka is still flowing there. No, oh, well, that's... <laughs> Let, let's hope the Hotel Mercure Grand Mercure um, sorts itself out for next year because yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. that was an error. Um, but in terms of uh, your your books, uh, you started writing on started publishing. I guess uh, we're talking about what twelve years ago now. Yes, the first book came out in nineteen. 19- um, 
2011. I was going to say 1911. Then. Yeah, that would have been good. You've been punishing a long while. <laughs> you look good on it too. Um, yeah, thank you. So 2011, yes, um, that was my first. So the sort of the, the sequence was um, I had a career. First of all, I was a barrister. Then I was uh, in a merchant bank, as they used to say. Then I then I went worked in a corporate environment, and then I started my own company with my um, partner Anil, and we uh, started a computer services business. Which uh, so that would have been the beginning of the nineties, and we were able we we built it up, and we were able to sell it um, at the beginning of the two thousands, and so I had a bit of latitude, let's say, and I'd always wanted to write books and. Um, um, but but never had the time to do it. So I said, this is this is my chance. So I better get on and do it. So I did. And it took me, obviously, it took me a long while to write the first one because I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and um, eventually, um, and I couldn't get it published. I self-published it with Matador, who are extremely, uh, very good firm, I think. I highly recommend it to anyone who can't, can't get, get on the ladder yet. And uh, then, uh, since then, there have been five books. And I did manage to get on the publishing ladder, first of all, with a small um, publishing company called Accent Press. And then I was taken over by Hachette. So I'm now I'm publi- published by Headline. Fantastic. And that uh, that desire to write, were you, I mean, in, in your uh, portfolio career from barrister to merchant banker to uh, entrepreneur? Yeah. <laughs> I love that word. How, how much scope was there for, for working on, on the craft or just dabbling with no, writing? None at all. I mean, I'm sure I could have found some. Maybe I wrote the odd short story. I mean, my, I, I did write sort of half, half a book uh, when I was in university and when I was doing, and then I kept on when I was doing my uh, pupillage for a barrister. Yeah. But once I got in, into work, I just, uh, I, no doubt, so obviously some people, amazingly, lots of people, find the time uh, to work and then get onto their books at night or in the morning, whatever. I, I didn't, but I had, I had still had the burning ambition all the way through. And I said, I'm going to do that one day. And um, so that all of a sudden I didn't have my business to run. I, I didn't have to rush off and do anything else. So I, that's how I, I started. Now I'm fascinated that you decided to, to work specifically in historical fiction. Your books are set in, in world war two and uh, London and that in itself, because I'm I I am dabbling with a story written in 1940, which will go through, take us through to 1945 um, and, and beyond, perhaps. But the you're research chasing level, me, Adrian. Chasing sorry? me. you're chasing me. Well, I, a little bit. A <laughs> Don't little worry, bit. he's a, he's quite slow. <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, yeah, it's hare and tortoise uh, time with yeah, this. But... I'm in 1943 now for the next right. book, so. I could still get there before the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, what I what I notice is, I mean, you take, I mean, you are you have a base in London, so you take advantage of that and using Q and the National Records Office there to do your research. Now, I don't have that advantage because I'm in the Midlands, but I'm, I'm I'm very conscious that every time I write anything, I'm thinking, right, okay, well, I really need to go and back this up with some research. Whereas I'm starting to sort of do it from from imagination and the, just the odd bit on the yeah. snippet. On, on online whereas you're meticulously building the picture of the world of the period you're writing about before you commit words to the page um yes um so in terms of things like um uh, q public records office to be honest i don't do that so much anymore because i find everything i find i can find everything on the internet or it, I, I have 
bought books along the way. So I've got all sorts of histories of World War II and, and that, that, which I can look up. But it's amazing between, you know, 2007, 8, 9, 10, when I was writing the first book, um, all the way, you know, the, the, the internet has changed, you know, so massively. I mean, that, um, you know, you, if you want to find out what the weather was on a particular day in London or in Oxfordshire or wherever, you can do it. If you're in, as as I was, and when I was in the period of the of the Blitz and so on, if you want to find out which squadron was leaving which air for air, air base on which day and what what hits there were and whatever, you can find it. Um, you can go, you know, if there's a character, you just go on Wikipedia. You can find a character if necessary. If you need deeper work, deeper stuff, it refers to you to a whole bunch of books where you can find it. Um, so um, the abs- the presence of the Q Public Record record office excuse me and other libraries i still use them but not they're not so essential right but in the sense uh going back further to what you said about building my picture i mean obviously having written five books i have a sort of quite a lot a lot of it already just in there which i don't need to check anymore but yes in the in the process of a book i start off um now and i've got all my main characters and so on of course i can change those a bit if i want to but when I start out, I pick my date, my specific period. So this last one was the summer of 42, and I read around that a lot. Uh, and now I'm reading a lot around spring 1943. I have actually put pen to paper or hat finger to, to whatever and started a few early, early pages. But um, I'm, I'm still, I'm still um, building more historical information. And it's in the building of that historical information. I usually get usually get my plot ideas. So, for example, um, or, or or it could be just serendipity. For the book that's just come out, Dead in the Water, um, I was here in France and I read a biography of someone called uh, Carlos Kulbenkian, who is not a name which rings a bell with many people now. But in 1942, he was probably the richest man in the world. He basically was known as, well, he was, not basically, he was known as Mr. 5%. Because he um, he was an Armenian who lived in London in the early part of the 20th century, and he made he made the introductions for all the major oil companies to the Middle East, right? And and, and he got five percent going on and on and on and on. Yeah, obviously it would change it would changes, but that was what he was known as. So in 1942, uh, which I happened to read, he was living uh, in Lisbon. And I had an idea to build a story involving Lisbon because it was a hotbed of intrigue and yes. espionage and so on. As it happens in my book, it doesn't play, it plays a part, but not as much part as I originally thought at the beginning. So I have Mr. Gulbenkian, Gulbenkian in Lisbon. Um, I have the, the opportunity to kick off some uh, ideas about spies in, in Lisbon, which I do in the book. But Gulbenkian was also a huge um, art uh, collector. <clears throat> and now if you go to if you go to uh, Lisbon, there's a Gulbenkian Museum. It's got all sorts of fantastic stuff. So that prompted me to say, well, I wonder whether he was still buying art during the war. And then I, that led me onto the thoughts of Nazis before the war having looted lots of major art, particularly from Jewish, rich Jewish families, yeah. and taking it back to Germany or wherever. So those ideas will come as I'm doing my research. And then you go into 1942, then you learn other things too. And then, you, and then I kick off, and, I, and I'm what they call a pantser. I don't plan it all out. I just go with the flow. I love so, that. So the actual the final book that you write could be quite different from what you originally started out, based on yeah. the, sort of yeah. the, the way your mind is sort of following a trail of 
ideas and uh, thoughts? You can. I mean, I, I, one thing, uh, so to some people it's a criticism, to some people it's an element of praise. I write quite complex stories and complex plots. So there's always an element of what I started out in there. So there is uh, Lisbon it features, spies feature, intrigue between Germans, Russians, Brits, Americans. That was all that I had in my mind. And it's all in the book. Mm. But then there are mm. other things in the book too. Uh, and they usually I write, so I write a first draft and I don't fiddle with it at all. I don't edit it as I go along. I write the whole first draft. Um, and it's usually three quarters of the way through that I find I have to resolve what happens. And, you know, as I say to people, I'm almost like a reader because I don't know what's going to happen. I've all these guys set up, you know, usually there's been a few murders by three quarters of the way through. Not necessarily, so could, some could come after. I'm not saying they don't come after either. And I just have to work out what happens. And um, so it's enjoyable and intriguing to me. But then when I finished, I've got my first draft. And in this case, it was 200,000 words. And everything, of course, as they say, is in the editing. So I edited, I edited it about 20 times, and it came in about 110,000. I did have one um, reviewer uh, uh, who, you know, she, she gave me a five-star review, but she criticized me because she likes, I think in my third book was actually quite long. It was like, uh, I think it was about 130, 140,000 words. And, you know, you know, publishers are always trying to, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I know. We too, I'm sure sorry. We're brutes. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing that too. But yeah, that one person did, did say, "Oh, I wish, I wish he'd left more in." <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you can't please everyone. No, you can't please everyone. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. that's the that's my process. But yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we we see that that people either criticise uh, books for being too complicated, and they say, "I couldn't keep up with what was going on, and I couldn't yeah. work out who was who," and then we get people who who criticize the other way and you know it's, well I, I think that is you know you have to be comfortable with what you're you're doing and standing yeah. by that and i think that the fact is that it'll either attract or repel you know every author is marmite you know that, that's the yeah. nature of it i actually think I mean, if, if someone if, wants if to please everyone then so, you haven't done a good job <laughs> no no i mean i and I, I you know i've got i've got a you know stinker reviews for um every one of my books i can point you to but i can also point you to pretty much 90 percent positive ones so i think i must be doing the right thing for lots of people <laughs> yes i mean yeah the only i think the only negative criticism i got dead in the water is someone said i just couldn't cope with all the characters and i gave up you know well yeah. okay you give up if you want a sort of simpler i was going to say agatha christie but i just read an agatha christie which was quite complicated so um you know if you if you like um more simple homespun thrillers detective stories will buy them don't buy yeah, me. exactly read something else yeah. yeah yeah and i think that's i always think the the one star reviews are more a, a, a review of themselves as opposed to the author <laughs> because it, they, yeah you know, they I, reveal I, you know, themselves probably, <laughs> yeah i probably shouldn't pay everyone says oh i don't pay any attention to my reviews, but i do if I, I see a one i then go to if it's on goodreads or something you can see what how many ratings they give generally and usually they give like their average is two they just don't like any, anything. Yeah, the, the Goodreads um, is quite harsh in that way. Oh, it, it is. That, yeah, yeah. For yeah. people who just. It's the killing like fields say, of review like sections. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, but Dead in the Waters, I think it's 4.4, 4.5 average yeah. at the moment. So it's, it's, it's doing okay. That's fantastic. And, and it's interesting, you, I mean, I, I, ha, I have also been trying to write about Lisbon, but this is a launch pad to taking my character forward into, well, dare I say, at the 21st century. So you'll have is, to is bear it, with me. It, 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 
back in time, but a forward in time one, is it? Well, yeah. So, I mean, you know, to give the the, <coughs> the sort of thumbnail of what I've done is, I've been working on a on a series of five books, which would be set in World War Two with with uh, a protagonist called Rafe, who's a sort of you know a bit of a card type spy the sort of guy that they were recruiting early on in the war who was good at yeah. rugger went to the right college and school um but ne- didn't necessarily treat the war as being a serious thing yeah, yeah. um and his uh, his love interest is much more earnest and she's sucked into uh working for military intelligence um for various reasons but principally because she thinks that uh, she's been persuaded that working for this branch and spying for the Nazis will save her brother. So you take these two characters uh, through different um, stages of the war uh, and they're, you know, they're, they get together, they split up, they split, you know, yep. get together. And in 1943, I was going to transport Rafe from Lisbon <laughs> to 21st century. Devon, in fact. Devon, yeah. No, Cornwall, <laughs> Cornwall. It was Cornwall. But, and I, what I wanted yeah, to do with the character. aging. Without age, no, no, it was a time, time, you know, he, some yeah. sort of MacGuffin uh, Nazi machine that he steals and <laughs> off he goes. Uh, and he gets shot down at the same time as Leslie Howard on the um, the flight oh, right. back. Okay. Um, and that is the catalyst that creates enough energy to send him so forward. The plane, I, I, you know, I have a plane in my plane journey in my book from Lisbon to Bristol. They used to That's right. Yeah, they Bristol. dropped in at Bristol. Yeah, and it's actually the plane which we, you know, it's, this is before Leslie Howard, mm. but uh, it's it's the actual plane that that, that he went down on. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, uh, I, I, that was I had a bit more on it, but that's some of the, the that's some of the uh, ninety thousand words I got shot. <laughs> <laughs> you, you got freedom there. <laughs> well, yeah, people, I mean, I don't think it's widely known that there was this diplomatic corridor and basically there was a gentleman's yeah. agreement that diplomatic flights out of Lisbon would be left alone. But on the yeah. occasion Leslie Howe got shut down, in, in nine German fighters attacked it. The whole yeah. staffel went at it and, and took it down. Um, anyway, the, uh, the so you, you what, what I was going to do was take this character who has all the prejudices uh, that a man of his uh, background would have and place right. him in... A woke society and see how they yeah. how he comes oh, from that. I think that's interesting. I'll read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> I mean, it's it... quite it's quite the scene you did right. So he goes to a pub, doesn't he? And he he, he lights up immediately. Lights up because he would. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he's <laughs> so thrown he out. Smoke. Um, he can't figure out why people are wearing uh, what look like Mae West uh, life jackets, i.e., puffer jackets, um, <laughs> in, in a pub. I and, think that's a great uh, idea. Uh, he's most often put <laughs> off by the, the range of real ales behind the bar, which includes one called uh, Dogs. Well, you know, you can imagine <laughs> dangly bits. Um, and uh, then he looks up and he sees pickled eggs on the uh, on the on the shelf behind, and he imagines that's probably what they're selling. <laughs> um, so he's completely off off kilter. Um, yeah. At this point, he actually thinks he's dead and he's in heaven, and that's yeah, why so he, he interprets this is what heaven looks like. <laughs> This whole thing. Uh, and then uh, I'm giving all the plot away, but the, the inciting incident that really takes him into what becomes a, a sort of chase plot is uh, he's he's basically walked into a vintage festival. Loads of people in cosplaying World War II people and uh, a couple of guys dressed as Wehrmacht drive up on a motorcycle sidecar. Uh, and, of course, he overreacts. He's carrying his well-rod pistol or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that sounds great. 
And then he gets uh, the, he gets tasered by the Devon and Cornwall police, and they can't believe their luck because they never get a chance to taser anybody. Um, <laughs> so they overdo it a bit. <laughs> this book will get published one day, I promise. <laughs> there is a wonderful book, um, which is uh, uh, part set in uh, Lisbon in the war and then mm. modern day, uh, which is called A Small Town in Lisbon by um, Robert Wilson. Death. Robert Small Wilson. Death. Small death in yeah yeah. Have you read that? Yes, I have. Yeah, great, great book. Great. It's a great book. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's what took me to Lisbon in the first book. I'd read yeah. that previously. Yeah, no, yeah, me too. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to get. Yeah. No. Have you? Um, <laughs> did you do geographical location research in Lisbon, or were you locked down, or what? what? Well, no, I didn't go. I've been to Lisbon a couple of mm. times. Uh, I have travelled in the past. Um, so we're in. Um, my second book, Stalin's Gold, which is now, mm. as I think you know, the titles have been changed. That's in the uh, in the shadows of the Blitz. I struggle to remember it sometimes. Um, I did go to uh, Warsaw and um, Moscow, which was so that was that would have been that, so that's uh, maybe about 2012, something like yeah. that. It was it was relatively safe to go there then. Yes, and yes, and I did because there's and there's an, a strong element of Poland and. Um, there's a scene set in Warsaw so I did that that was good fun but um, <clears throat> no I haven't uh, in my third book I had um, the Vichy but I was able to do it all on Google Earth you know it's mm -hmm. amazing what you can do <clears throat> excuse me um, but um, no I haven't been I've done any traveling for, for, for a while on my books uh, no it's I was going to say that some people feel very strongly that if you're going to write about a place, you, the author has to have been there and walked the streets. But actually, you know, with Google Earth, you mm. can virtually do all that. And yeah, still... I, I, I actually do the same when I'm reading a book now. When when there's a sort of, uh, I was reading Michael Connolly and there was a scene in Los Angeles. I, I have lived in Los Angeles, actually. But I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'll go and see what that looks like. It's quite, you know. And I think I saw somewhere the other day there's some new website started where authors can input all their locations. Uh, I, I can't remember what it's called now, but something. So people can get really um, yeah. down and dirty in their geography now. I was going to use another word, but um, uh, yeah. So you don't have to have been there. Most of the locations in my books I've either been to, most of them I've been to, yeah. I would say 90, 95%. So when, I, so when I'm, I'm in London, you know, I have some scenes, so for example, in Cheney Walk. So, you know, so I, I, yes. I actually did the, I did the location stuff after I'd written it, you know, when I was editing and I got something wrong about the side, the height of the Chelsea River wall and so on. Yeah, it's <laughs> minute, minute, but it's good to do it. You know, it's good, good to get it right. I've oh, not, I, not, been picked, not been picked up by any reader yet on, on any geographical matter. Well, that's, well, that's, that's that, good. That, yeah, because that, yeah. readers are very good about finding the teeny tiny thing, the one I, thing. Yeah, <laughs> I have been, I have been picked up on, um, so some oh, some very minor little uh, date errors, um, which I corrected then in the, in the next proof and whatever, uh, next to the next edition. And um, my the two principal um, one I definitely got wrong was in uh, in the first book, Prince's Gate. I have a scientist who's working for the Ministry of Defence, and can can you tell me what the, what was wrong? With well, that? that would be the War Ministry, wouldn't it? Yeah, War Office. So the War Office, yeah. I, I've corrected that. I think I've corrected that. I have I asked them to correct that. Before. Yeah. And then in, um, in, this, in the one I was mentioning, Stalin's Gold, um, there's an opening scene in which Merlin and his girlfriend are sitting on Brighton Beach looking at the fighters in the distance and whatever. And this one is arguable. 
because you know most of the beaches were mined yes during yeah. the war but this this scene takes place uh, late september in, on brighton beach and i've got uh, evidence literary evidence saying it was closed off on october the first <laughs> right right the other person doesn't agree so there we are <laughs> no no i think i think you're right I, I, it's interesting because I, I i worked in brighton as a reporter and um i did a i did a feature on you know the yeah. uh the the cleanup post-war yeah. cleanup um yeah. but the the level of uh arm you know the way they armed the, the west and the the palace peers um to you know because i mean it's 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 a very obvious place to uh to bring your uh your landing craft you don't have to bring yes, it off yeah, the beach yeah. you can just bring them onto britain's piers yeah. uh, <laughs> and uh you know send your nazis on that way um yeah. but no uh, brighton brighton beach has a as a big feature in in the in the book that i was writing actually um uh you know that one i was describing the the time travel yeah. one big set piece there yeah. um not least because when i was a reporter the, the, we had one occasion where they were marking the whatever it would have been uh, anniversary of d-day and i guess it was the 50th uh, yeah. right? Yes. So it was the mid nineties. And um, the, the, the fun thing about this was I was sent off to go and, and report and they had some veterans there uh, and the, the Royal Marines reserves were going to come in on a landing craft and, and rescue Miss Brighton from terrorists on West, the, on what <laughs> remained of the West pier. <clears throat> it, you couldn't make it up. Uh, but you did. The noise <laughs> was extraordinary. I mean, they weren't holding back. I mean, this was, this was, you know, general purpose machine guns going off and, and oh, God, grenades. I, I mean, it was, the noise was incredible, but these three blokes were there, Tom, Dick and Harry, I'll call them because I can't quite remember. And uh, they were talking about D-Day and they were going, yeah, it was terrible. I saw terrible things and all that. And, and so Harry, you know, sorry, Dick, what's your reflections on it? Yeah. I, I, I'm scarred by it. You know, it was too much to see, you know, my best mate, Bill, Bill he didn't make it and all this sort of stuff. And then I got to Harry, he goes, we gave the Nazis a bloody good hiding, the Nazi <laughs> scum. <laughs> Cold British steel, right up their jacksies and all this sort of thing. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's uh, I just, you know, those guys uh, lived it. And, and so therefore I had to bring it to Brighton Beach yeah, for yeah, that reason, yeah. Um, yeah. for that for that memory. You're, you're, you're reminding me of another uh, quote uh, about Hitler uh, on the subject of crimes, mm. of what you were talking about, which is um, which I usually quote to say because, of course, crime in the war boomed; it went up sixty percent. Yeah. criminals had a great time. And um, late in his life, Mad Frankie Fraser, yes. Richardson in Torta, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. he, he had someone go, a ghost to bio, a biography and he went on a one-man speaking tour as well but i remember seeing him it was either wogan or russell harty where they asked him to talk about the war and, and he said uh that bastard hitler why did he give in so easy we were having a fantastic time <laughs> <laughs> yes party pooper <laughs> well um, it, it's interesting because you know one of the characters in the in the, in the thing i'm writing rapes manservant is basically a an east end uh you know he's got he's he's uh he's running a, a racket from from rafe's apartment in kensington it's <laughs> that kind of <laughs> kind of thing so he's he's in the black market for everything yeah. um and 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 the, the great thing with him is that i keep him alive long enough to make it in you know into his mid-90s and so he's still keeping the flat and running his rackets from there oh, really? <laughs> uh, when Rafe returns and everything else is kept in aspect. So it's just like it was in World War II, apart from his room, which is, you know, a criminal mastermind's <laughs> lair. Um, anyway, I, a lot of fun with it. Um, let's let's talk about your key character, DCI Frank Merlin. Yeah. 
Uh, you, you made him Anglo-Spanish. Yes. Um, what was your thinking when you were creating the character uh, uh, around? So what, uh, when yeah. I read, yeah, but I when I, when I originally uh, was writing him, he was just a straightforward cop. He was called Harry something. I can't remember even what the last name was. <clears throat> and I was a bit, thought it was a bit stereotypical. And I was on holiday in Spain and I was looking at some sheep. And, you know, there's something called Merino wool. Yeah. And uh, Merino, I said, that's quite a nice name, isn't it? Fine, Merino. And then I thought, literally, I just thought, why don't I make uh, Frank uh, Spanish or, you know, then half Spanish. And so I came up with this whole idea while well, I was on holiday of his father having been, um, a si- I mean, nothing to do with the wool, actually, but I mean, it's just that, Marino, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> that, um, that his father was a seaman from Corona who, uh, before the war, came to London, fell in love with an English girl, Aggie Cutler, married her, had children. His name was Javier Marino. <laughs> he endured, they ran a chandlery shop together. He took over the, his father-in-law's chandlery shop with his wife. They had children, uh, Francisco Marino, um, Maria Marino, and I uh, can't remember what the other one is now because he doesn't feature <laughs> very much. I'll have to check it out somewhere. Uh, Charlie, Charlie, that's right, Carla, Carlos. And uh, so when Javier got fed up with people not being able to pronounce the name Javier, he changed his name to Harry Merlin, and his children became uh, Frank um, Maria, Mary and Charlie. And, uh, I love that. The background. I, that. I mean, he doesn't, you know, he, the elements which feature him being Spanish are he's tall, dark, and, dark and handsome, uh, unlike me. And um, But like my father, my father was tall, dark, tall, dark and handsome. And uh, so I, I have my father's image in my mind when I right. visualize him. Yeah. And uh, really, the only Spanish bits, well, there are elements of the story, this latest story and previous stories, which, which somehow involve Spain. So I won't go into the detail because I know I'm doing too much revealing, but there is a pro- plot line which involves someone from Spain who he knows um, and uh, being in London and so on. And um, the only other way in, in which um, his Spanishness features is every so often he swears in Spanish. You know? <laughs> Holy yeah. Maria. Or, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> or something, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cajones or, uh, yeah. Puta. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's brilliant. And, and, and presumably that background, does that give him an element of friction within Scotland Yard where he's working? Is it, is there... um, no, not really. I mean, he has, um, he's, he's ridden all that, all that through on the way up. Yeah. Know? And he went to the First World War and, you know, he's, he's done his bit for his country and he's worked his way up from constable to sergeant to... Yeah. So there's no element of particular of, of prejudice against him there. Um, although the so, but he has an assistant commissioner boss who's a bit prissy and a bit awkward who he occasionally flares up with, and uh, and then he has you know I'm, I'm not um, inventing uh, something completely new here. He has his sergeant who's a solid rugby playing type. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can handle himself, yeah. He can't go to the war because he's got six toes. I mean, it was the truth. If you have six toes, you can go in the army. You know, so. Really? Wow. Yep. But you've got an extra asset, surely. <laughs> well, whatever. But the, well, It's uh, one more thing to get gout in, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Merlin, um, Merlin tries to go to, to the war, but he's told he's more important to the home, home front. Mm. Front, yeah. Etc. And so he's got Sam, who's his uh, sergeant, and there are a variety of other sort of uh, 
constables in his team and so on, who uh, play, depending on which book, sometimes they may play a major role, sometimes they're more in the background. And there's, sorry, then there's another inspector who's a Geordie, Inspector Johnson. So that's that's the team, basically. Yeah. And um, um, he, Merlin has a personal life. He, he's a widower, but he's now got another um, friend. I, I, I won't go into more detail because someone complained the other day that I, I gave too much detail of what happened after he met the friend in the first book. So I'm not going to say anything <laughs> more about it. It's so it's <laughs> difficult. But I mean, basically, I've given away the, you know, about half the plot of my book. So it's, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, I better write the bloody thing. Um, about it so you can't help it can you, you just i know i know real to you these well i people. came very alive you know, <laughs> i've been basically keeping them stuck away for about 12 i haven't done anything with them for about 12 months so i can't really claim i'm writing it but, but, but you say you say there that it's real to adrian I mean, mm. merlin is real, real to me if i drive around london or i walk around london or i cycle around london every place you know i've yeah. used a lot of places in five books yeah and nearly every every place has a resonance so yeah that's when that guy that guy got murdered there that was the assault over there. You know? so it's, it's in my head all the time. I can't get it out. Yeah, so it is very real to you because yeah, yes, you've created is, this, yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. I had to give a, a talk at the school. And, you know, it's when you give a talk, you actually, you, your actual real ideas come out. I always find. And, and I, the kids said, well, you know, why, why do you want to write? And I said, well, one of the things you, you all might consider is that you create your entire, an entire world and that you, you have an entire universe over which you have control. And it's, and it's, you know, it is, there it is now, five books in, I've got this whole universe of things that's happened to Merlin and I can decide what happens next. And, um, you know, it's powerful. It is powerful, <laughs> it yeah. Is. It really is. You're the, you're the god of your world. I am, I am. <laughs> yeah, although, you know, and I think it's interesting because you pants it, so you let them deflect you in different directions. Yeah. I, mean, you know, I mean, and it is, it is the case also, which I think is a standard thing that people say is, you 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 got it up then then the, the characters take it over so uh, yeah and once you especially I, I I like I like creating villains that's great fun writing villains so once you've got an idea for a specific villain in a, in a book or a couple or three they do take it they do they 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 do take it forth what would they do next well they decide what they do next and mm. they just do it you know? I think it's I mean I was going to ask you a question this is going back over your career really because it's fascinating with the the sort of sweep of what you've done uh you have come across and been in positions where you're seeing some of the i presume as a barrister and in merchant banking and all those sort of things you're seeing people highly motivated intelligent people doing things for you know that villains would do in the sense that they're 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 doing it because they believe in what they're doing and the rightness of what they're doing um and therefore those jobs must give you and indeed being an entrepreneur, tremendous insight into the human psyche. Does, does that reflect in your writing, do you think? Um, it it reflect, reflects in the characters I write about and mm. it reflects in the plots. I mean, for example, you mentioned the financial world and, and you know, there's lots of uh, wrongdoing that's been, been going on, has, uh, will continue to be done wrong, you know, mm. wrong done or whatever the word is. Um, and so I have, um, again, I think it's in Merlin at War, I have, I have sort of financial skull, skullduggery. Um, and actually, in each of the books, there's some sort of financial skullduggery, because I think in The Death in Mayfair, there's some, some fiddling of accounts and things like that to justify bank loans and things. Yeah. So, yes, not that I ever did anything like that at all, <laughs> but I'm aware of what could be done. And um, uh, again, in Merlin at War, um, 
there is a company in Argentina, which one of the main characters partly, partly controls. And um, in the olden days, they, they can't do it anymore. In a lot of these countries, they would, um, you would have something called a bearer share, which is, you know, you weren't registered on anywhere. You had a bearer share, which said you had 10,000 shares in whatever company it was. And you had to have the, you had to have the physical yeah. thing in your hands, which obviously can offer a huge scope for um, fraud and God knows what. And yeah, you know, yeah. I, you know, I have instances where I learned about bearer shares when I was in the banking. So, of course. I mean, so I, I would say, and I'm not sure about um, the psychology of my characters. I suppose, yes, when I'm creating the, 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 the characters, the, the, what they want to do, what their motives are, and so on, must reflect some of my own experiences in life. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a it's a fascinating world to be able to draw on, isn't it? And and especially yeah. when you're seeing it from different from different in different environments and different professions. Because yeah. uh, I mean, my my background being with the BBC, I see a lot of a lot of this behaviour that you would see in uh, I, I presume in, in in current banking would be reflected in the way that people climb to the top of yeah. the media. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a different, you know, different, uh, metrics that you're measuring against, but nonetheless, the yeah. aim is still to get to the top and do the other person in. <laughs> and, Which is well, what a villain uh, does. Yeah. So in, in a death in Mayfair, he's not really a villain in, in the story, but, um, so I have a, 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 there's a, there's a film studio. I mean, I had learned to put my research. There was, there were like 15 or 16 film studios operating in London in the war. Mm. It's a hell of a lot, you know. Ones you would know from, from the BBC Ealing, whatever, but um, yeah, so I created, which we bought, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I created um, at this particular film studio down by the River Thames. You know, there's one at Bray, it isn't the one at Bray, but whatever. And um, I, and I, there's a film uh, mogul, um, who is very much based on Sir Alexander Corder, who mm. you may recall, yeah, um, made, made films like uh, my, my personal all-time favourite, The Third Man, and so on, other, many other great films. And he had a fantastic backstory of, you know, poverty and uh, yeah. in a shtetl in Hungary, I think it was, and working his way through and getting to Paris and whatever. That was a, that, in, that, in that editing job, unfortunately, a lot of the background got cut too. But, um, but yeah, you know, so there's a, there, there are real people doing, you know, there's fictional characters, but I've got real people influencing specific characters or in some cases being in the books themselves. Yes. I quite enjoy doing that. No, I think that's really important. That's one of the great joys, I think, of historical fiction, if we're winding it out um, in that discussion, is that when you do bring in people that are familiar, uh, and I'm, uh, it, it is, it's a terrific. Um, I mean, I, I, I love the. Um, I'm trying to remember who the author is now, whose name has just escaped me. Um, Michael Dobbs, and his books yeah, about yeah. Churchill, House of Cards. Yeah, yeah. House of Cards guy, yes, but uh, he wrote. Yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Yep. which I loved, um, which are, you know, yep. essentially most of the characters in there are the people that surrounded Churchill in the build-up to war and then as he came into office yep. and, um, yep. you know, Boothby and people like that. And and so um, they're, you know, he's he's taking a, an interpretation of them. But within that sphere, you're also dropping in fictional characters mm. that, that propel the story yep. along. And, and I yep. love that. Uh, my, in my books... Uh... They, they, they in in his books they're the major role in my books they're playing a minor role but right. you know, we overlap there's the scene in michael one of michael dobbs's books where that uh, which i only read after i'd written my scene i'd written a scene where uh churchill was having um uh dinner at the night at pearl harbor 
with uh, Avril Harriman and you know, various people. And I wrote mm. that scene and then I happened to pick up the Dobbs book. And I, I saw there was a similar scene. So I, it's not plagiarized or anything, but similar and, and, and whatever. But, um, you know, it's when the phone goes and they tell them Pearl Harbor's happened and Roosevelt on the phone. Um, yeah. yeah, so so yes, I, I have people like Churchill, uh, people like De Gaulle, um, Stalin, Joseph Kennedy, uh, uh, Senior. Joseph Kennedy, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> um, lots of, I have lots of, have lots of uh, real characters. I mean, Joseph Kennedy is one of the few real characters in my books who actually is peripherally, is really actually partly involved in a plot, potentially involved in it, but an element of the plot. Um, the other ones, or De Gaulle is involved in an element of the plot because it's all about spying at the French embassy. Um, yeah. Churchill and Stalin get into this one because one my, my I have an American character who's a sort of been seconded to Merlin a couple of times called Goldberg. And Goldberg then ends up in Moscow at the time when Churchill went on his way to come and help Merlin solve the next murder. So right. sometimes it's, it's a bit of a stretch, but I, I still enjoy it. No, no one seems to complain. You do get complaints. I think you buy yourself a license, though, don't you? I mean, if you if you get the details right, I think this is where a lot of people get this wrong, is that if you take too many liberties and you get the factual stuff wrong, you don't get the context right, you don't set the setting properly, you you know, you make a, a big yeah. cock up with the pricing of a meal or whatever it might be, somebody will pick up the deed, then you lose their faith to take you into those areas of imagination and conjecture. Yeah. And I think that that's that's really where a historical novelist earns their keep is 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 by being uh, dedicated to making sure everything bar the plot is accurate. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you and you mustn't distract. You know, you mustn't just try and sh- just show off your historical knowledge. Just, no. you know, you've got to. That's what you know. Maybe in my two hundred thousand word draft, there's probably a bit of that, and I cut that. You know, mm. you, you've got to have the plot driving. You can't meander off and not have the plot moving forward um you know so uh that's that's a key element of the edit is and and i, th- I think people do say when they read my books oh i never knew that for example in the latest book they didn't know that the americans had jurisdiction over their soldiers you know from august 1943 and so um people like you, you've got to but you've got to be sparing with you're educational. You mustn't be educational. You've got to no. be entertaining. Yeah. I think that is the, the true talent of a historical novelist, though, isn't it? It's you're not like you say, you're not educating, you're not information dumping on people. Yeah. If they want to read about it, they can go off and read yeah. about it. But yeah, I mean it's interesting because I've read a lot of Michael Crichton when I was younger, and I used to wince when he used to go into the info dump bits because he was a great one for taking um science fact or science, you know, something that's about yeah. to come down the line. Um, in terms of technology, and then would yeah. create a plot around it. So I remember yeah. reading one about uh, corruption in airlines, and, uh, and then he would just give you a whole chapter on how a, a DC-10, you know, engine system works or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> well, at that point, yeah. I just skip, I think. <laughs> yeah. For no apparent yeah. reason, just because he's done the research. He needs a good editor. Yeah. <laughs> I, I liked him. I, the, the book of his I liked best was the one I can't remember what it was called, but it's 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 like they're going a time machine back to medieval France. Yeah, and a time arrow or something like that. Oh uh, yeah, I've heard of it. it, it what I really, it was impressed by is his evocation of what a world, what a 13th century world would be like. You know, 
the noises that don't exist and the noises that do exist. And it was quite lyrical. I, I, you know, was, for him, I thought it was quite, you know, he's a very good writer, but I mean, it was artistic. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's quite interesting what you say, though. The noises don't exist anymore. That's quite hard to come up with. Well, you know, obviously there's no aeroplanes going in the sky, <laughs> you know, there's no motor car, but, you know, he's, he extended it in a very, very interesting way. Yeah, no, that's, that's really, that's a really good point. In terms of um, working, you know, to building your world, historically, factually, characters, but in terms of how much of the other senses you bring into your work, do you... Oh, taste is a good one. Yeah, I mean, how, 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 I mean, the blandness of wartime you know, rationing food. Um, does that, how, how much stall do you play by in your work? Um, yeah, I have, I, if you're talking about, do you mean like descriptive elements in my books? Yeah, I think so. Just, tent, you know, bringing all the senses into play. I, I do discuss food and, you know, people go into Lions Cafes as they do and have, uh, <laughs> Um, a Walton pie. Do you remember what that was? Walton pie was a sort of no. pie made out of sort of rubbish bits of food, which was promoted by Lord Walton, who was the Minister of Food. So I have characters eating that. So I also do have characters eating, you know, lovely meals because if you were rich in the war, yeah, you could afford you it. Could still go to a re- you could still go and have, have if you went to the Ritz or you know, have a, yeah, a whole no, the, the rationing didn't exist, you know, they, they got That's what right. they got. And uh, if you were Churchill dining in Chequers, you know, you got what you got. There was there was no constraints, really. That was my surprise. Um, when I was writing a scene for the Dorchester and I was looking at the rationing situation, A, it came in later in 19, you know, late in 1940, uh, rationing. So it doesn't really affect May when I'm talking about. But actually, yeah, you're right. You could go to the Dorchester and have a really, really good meal with top quality I mean, there might, there might be something that you can't get, but I mean, yeah. whatever you can get is really nice, you know. And, yeah. Uh, and, and, Foie gras so. still available, caviar, the lot, you know, yeah. it's, it, it's there if you can afford it. Yeah. And um, sort of generally, I, I'm, I, I don't think I'm a, a writer who spends hours on description. You know, I try and I try, I try and get, make it all succinct, whether that be a character um, or whether that be a place. Um, um, in terms of characters, you know, I think it's pen, pen brush approach. In a thriller, I think pen brush approach. People don't want to have all the exact details or whatever you know yes no, but you're, you're just dropping in little snippets well this is a debate the... we, we have yeah. we had last week with malcolm price who was with us um the, the author right, of okay the, yeah avarice uh, with more Moore and all that sort of thing yeah, yeah that's yeah. right <laughs> and and he's he's again i mean you know he doesn't waste any time on his description but boy do, does he land it you know what i mean it's yeah. it's uh it's pinpoint perfect because you get a, a a very colourful metaphor or image to, yeah. to to sum up the character. But where I always have a problem, and I think you have a problem with with, with submissions particularly we get, is the, the full paragraph describing no, I, everything. I don't that, need to the, know what colour the socks are. Or the cufflinks or the, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, the laces, you know. No, I agree. I, I, I agree with you entirely. Yeah, I, I'm, I don't, I'm, sometimes I, you know, I get to the end of the book and I realise I haven't actually described someone at all. So I will try and put something in. Uh, but it, I, I, there's no doubt you could go through my books and find some characters who are not really described. I, I don't think I don't think it's the end of the world. I, I can't remember who it was now, but I was reading uh, some punchy writer like someone like Elmore Leonard or some, something like that. <laughs> I'm not saying it was him, but it was someone like him who said, "I never describe my characters. You know, you can just get the drift of what they're like by the actions. Um, you know, or or I might say there's a pretty girl, and that's it. You know, but." Uh, 
again, I think I, I tend to write in sort of short, sharp, sort of punchy scenes and, um, and hopefully driving everyone on without too much peripheral baggage. If you know yeah. Oh, that's good. That's terrific. Um, we, before we get to Rebecca's random question, which is fast approaching, uh, in terms of... I'm nervous. I'm nervous. I, I can see you shaking with fear. Oh, someone asked me the other day what, 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 what book I'd been reading. I couldn't remember the title, but it was a, it was a Maigret. Who can ever remember a title of a Maigret? There's like 150 of them or whatever. <laughs> so don't ask me the title of the book. Uh, no, wait, it's not let that. Let me just check what books I've been reading. No, it's, it's not a factual question. <laughs> no, 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 it's always completely okay, unrelated right. um, to, to anything, really. Uh, so it's a flight of fantasy. Uh, but basically, I wanted to ask about the... Uh, what you've got planned next because obviously you just had uh, dead in the water out and uh yeah. you're writing another it's taking us to 1943 you're going to take us through the war yes um so um yeah the, the idea is to go all the way through the war um uh, i had a contract for six books so i'm assuming I'm, you know maybe, maybe i'm assuming wrongly but there'll be another one somehow or other there will be another book uh, and um with uh presumably by hachette but I would say my my uh, yeah next one is going to be spring 1943. So the next one after that would be somewhere maybe it would be Christmas nine January 19. You know it doesn't have to be. It's not all calculated exactly, but they're all roughly eight to nine months apart. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so on that basis, it takes me three or four books to get to the end of the war. I do have other ideas for books, and I quite like to write a standalone at some point. But I think at the moment. As you know, people getting to know that Merlin is becoming more popular and selling more, and, and be, you know, getting better appreciation. I should, I think, I should stick with it for a bit longer. And I've got loads of ideas, so uh, that's good. Fantastic. And one is idea it... I have it doesn't mm-hmm. go into your area at all, Adrian. Is a, is a I had an idea which actually preceded Frank Merlin of a sort of a Daf- Daniel Defoe type character as a sort of private investigator in the and you know, Daniel Defoe was a. Not only was that he was the first novelist, but he was a political pamphleteer. He was a spy. He was all sorts of things. I thought yeah, someone, yeah. either him as a character, might be quite quite a good thing, or, or someone fictional based on him. Yeah, Daniel Yeah, incredible, incredible man. And uh, it's funny because the mother of my first girlfriend was right. She, she spent. She did her PhD uh, as a mature student. On Daniel Defoe. I thought oh, you were going to say you're related to Daniel Defoe. No, 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 not at all. So I, 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 rem- <laughs> I just remember this gigantic table they had in their house with all of her research work, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and you know, just talking Daniel Defoe. Did you absorb any to, of the I was basically, yeah, I did. Well, I was trying to look intelligent for the benefit oh, of the I daughter by yeah, talking to the mum about Daniel Defoe. <laughs> I was I was basically blagging it the whole way, um, <laughs> but yeah, what an interesting character. So uh, you know, that, yeah, let's let we want that book. We want that book. <laughs> right, let's let's put you through through oh, the ringer no. now. It is time. I'm going to do the deep voice now. Rebecca's random question. So, I live with a household of sci-fi fans. So Star Wars, Star Trek, and now a new one called The Orville. So I came up with this question last night. We were watching the Orville. The Orville is sort of a satirical Star Trek, but satirical. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I want to know if you could have been born any alien race from fiction, <laughs> which alien race would you have? Would Ooh. you choose? Oh. <laughs> uh, that's a truck. That's a tricky one. Um, wow. Okay, I would have been um, uh, a Martian in, in War of the Worlds. 
because you get to sit up high, you sit up really high. Oh, yeah, the tripody things. Good view of everything, yeah. Oh, that's I a good one. I wouldn't have thought that's a good one. Yeah, but then you catch a cold, which you've got at the moment, as you explained before you did the interview. <laughs> and you my, fa- my, and... my, fav- my favorite, um, sci- I, I do like sci-fi. My favorite sci-fi author is Philip K. Dick. Mm. And when you mm. started the question, I was trying to think, but there aren't really that many aliens in Philip K. Dick. They're really about humanity going forward and human yeah. questions. And uh, there was that wonderful book that turned it into not a very good TV series. Oh, the, the one castle. about uh, the man in the high castle. My son has just read that. Yeah, that is that is a brilliant book. Yeah, I quite like alternative histories and so on. Yes, you know, I love them. Yeah, I thought Robert Harris did brilliantly with Fatherland. That got me into the whole yeah. thing. And then there's, uh, one, there's another one called Pavan by Keith Roberts. This is a classic, um, which is where there's no reformation, so there's no electricity. Oh, wow. We're living now. People are driving around in steam engines because we're still subject to the um, the Vatican, which has excluded most most forms of technological advancement. Yes, hey, yes. Okay, they've got a Twitter account now, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> Martian, thank you. An HG Wells Martian. That's so how about one. you? Because you hit massive sci-fi. Oh, I I would be a Klingon on the basis that I could always shout um, <laughs> and just be guttural the whole time. Yeah. Uh, I love the you know I mean that, that they're quite fun because they're just always. You know, they just want to scrap the whole time. A bit like the wrestlers that I watch now. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the kind of sci-fi adventures. I think uh, I'd like to be a Borg because I like the idea of living in a square or a cube. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, we can assimilate you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't see you being a Borg. No? Uh, no, not really. You're too soft. <laughs> You're too nice uh, to be a Borg. <laughs> there's also... I, and also I, uh, writer i like very much is john windham so yeah oh, yes. yeah me too you can't yeah, actually yeah. be it trippid is not an alien is it because it's the it's the trippid now that's built bulked up and there's the chrysalids are, are there other are are i think they were carried on solar are... winds or something weren't they chrysalids yeah yeah okay no, so... i'll stick to being martian well i know it's interesting you bring up john windham because he features in rafe as well oh yeah because the whole <laughs> the whole chase premise is that there's a, a former uh, uh, Secretary of State for Defence, who was obsessed with John Wyndham scenarios, and so basically oh. he got Whitehall to draw up a whole load of protocols <laughs> for sci-fi. This is true. No, no, I'm just. It's in his head. It's in my head. <laughs> okay. It's in my head. But basically, um, there is. I mean, you know, they have a protocol which uh, anticipates. They had the uh, what was it? It was the, you know, the Midwich Doctrine and the uh, you know, whatever the. Um, uh, basically, I, I came up with all sorts of things from John Wyndham titles, but then there's this one which, if there's a time traveller in our midst, anyone who comes into contact with them has to be rubbed out to stop the contagion, and that is a this is dusted down from a from a tome written in the 1980s or something, yeah. and the current government. Uh, it, you know, it was Theresa May at the time I started writing this. So she, you could imagine her being rigid and rule bound by it. Well, it's written down. We're going to stick to it. <laughs> and so everywhere he goes, people are getting bumped off. Um, <laughs> so that sets up a, a, a. It's a lovely conceit. But then, of course, it's almost a pandemic story now. Um, sort of. Oh, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah in, in 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 a way. Sounds to me like you have a lot of good ideas, Adrian. You know. Well, thank you. Get um, them down and I, publish it. I have little application, <laughs> but lots of ideas. I have a sci-fi. Did you know that I found out yesterday? So, do you remember the cartoon The Jetsons? I do. Yeah. All right. So George Jetson was born in July 2022. Really? 
Yes. So in in forty years from now, we will be living the life of the Jetsons. <laughs> well, I'm, not sure I'll, I'm not sure I'll quite make forty years from now, but uh, okay, you will, I'm sure. Well, I think it'd be more Planet of the Apes, to be honest, where the humans <laughs> yeah. popped it up. That's interesting. <laughs> Well, look, Mark, it's been absolutely a joy to speak to you. Yeah. Uh, for people who wish to pick up um, more about you, where where should they go online? Um, I have a website, markellisauthor.com. Um, I'm on all social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. Um, and you can just uh, Google my Amazon page if you like. That's for more information about the books. And there are five available. They're available in all, in all formats, Audible paperback and kindle and um if you're in america um by any chance the paperback comes out on january the 17th and i shall be going over there then to promote oh, it. oh fantastic <laughs> can that, we that... come <laughs> <laughs> that's great fun well we'll we'll, we'll uh, yeah we'll, we'll tag along uh thank you so much for joining us and uh, we wish you all the success with uh, with your books in the future thank you very much both of you thank you i enjoyed it Mark did really well with your random question. He did, didn't he? Yes, he didn't bat an eyelid. He just he, answered. He did, he did. When we threw the same question to the boys, uh, they struggled. I think it's because the, the aliens are so unalien to them because they watch so much sci-fi, they couldn't choose. I think they relate more to aliens than uh, <laughs> than they care to admit. Absolutely. Right, and I did promise earlier that we'd talk about this, uh, this article that was in the bookseller. It's going to take me a couple of seconds to uh, drag it out, uh, get my phone working. But I did bookmark it, so it should be a bit quicker than it has been in, in previous efforts to record this podcast. We ought to mention that we have had a myriad technical issues uh, trying to record this last section of the podcast. <laughs> I think this is the fifth attempt. Yeah, it has. I mean, you know, I think gremlins are creeping in all the time. So, uh, this is this is a story that I've got it here in front of me. All right, good. Which is about Super Thursday, which is fast approaching October the thirteenth in the UK book selling market, and basically the hottest time of the year in terms of selling books is between September the first and December the thirty first. Yes, of course. The Christmas run up. Yeah, all those big glossy celebrity hardbacks biography. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's so this this article is a feature about you know what's coming out and what the booksellers are all excited about, and the number one thing they cite is a uh, new book from Heston Blumenthal, the three-star Michelin chef who has um, a restaurant, The Fat Duck in Bray, which is famous for its bacon and egg ice cream. I was going to say, he's the weird. He combines weird things and tries to make you want to eat them. Snail porridge? I would I would rather stick pins in my eyes than eat yeah, snail well, porridge. Well, there you are. Uh, he's got a new book, which is, uh, is this a cookbook. And uh, his last book was 11 years ago. And so there's a lot of excitement about the fact that's coming out. But Let me guess, you have a copy. I don't, actually. You don't have a copy? No, I flicked, I flicked through. I've got lots and lots of... I've got some of the books by the people who started the molecular gastronomy revolution, the people who inspired Heston, yeah. effectively. Um, and these are books I bought uh, probably the early 2000s. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that was when it was in its infancy. Now, if you go to uh, a website like Sous Vide, you will get, uh, or Sous Chef, or rather, I should call it, um, Sous Chef, you, you can get all this stuff which will, you know, turn, uh, excuse me, your cooking into uh, marbles of X or Y, 
Marbles. You know, little sort of droplets that that uh, float in your soup or something, you know, of, of intense flavour that, that burst and add to the dish. Isn't that just fatty bits? No, no, honestly, it's not. Okay, right, okay. I can't remember the process, but um, it's something, no doubt. If I ever enter MasterChef, I shall have to dabble in. You'll need to hire a kitchen, I think, with Bunsen burners and stuff. I think we're going to have to, I'm going to have to have a test kitchen. For, for for MasterChef, because, you know, I mean, our oven is so inadequate for the job. Anyway, uh, I digress. Let's uh, let's have a look at these figures then. So what's striking about this is that Nielsen BookScan, who are the people who you register your ISBNs with in the UK and your book details so that everyone is clear on what the book is and all that malarkey, all the metadata lives there. They are reporting that there are going to be fewer paperbacks and hardbacks released in this golden period of the year than for many years now, previous. You see, that surprises me. So when you dangled that you were going to do this in front of me, I expected it to be more than I expected, but I didn't expect it to be fewer because I thought perhaps after the um, pandemic, there may have still been a lag of books coming out, but obviously not. It's gone down even. Yeah, no, no that's right. So... Uh, for instance, let's have a look now. Right, okay, so Nielsen Bookscan is saying 10,331 hardbacks are scheduled to be released between the September the 1st and the 31st of December in Britain. And that is the industry's lowest output in 16 years. And just 11,271 paperbacks are due in the same period. That's by far the fewest number of autumn titles in the 21st century. That is, I mean, yeah, so you put that in context, that's... 22 years. That's yeah. a lot. Yeah, that's amazing. That is extraordinary, isn't it? Now, what does that reflect? Is it worry about the economic climate, which is clearly impacting on uh, confidence across all sectors of the economy? And naturally, because disposable income is going to evaporate for most people, if not get worse than that. And so books will no doubt be a challenge to sell i think so i think it has to be that because publishers are having to make decisions um about whether to publish certain books that five ten years ago they would have made the decision to take a risk they're they're slightly risk averse at the moment yeah i think there's also supply side issues uh, where uh, a lot of the traditional publishers are struggling to find anywhere they can get a decent enough print run at the right cost for them to be able to sell their hardbacks for a tenner at Christmas run-up. Yeah, so they you know, could half, be... You know, they'll batch them at 20 quid, but the shops will sell them at 10. They could be delaying things, and of course print costs will be high at this time of year because demand is higher compared to other times of year, so they might be putting off books for the, till the spring, thinking about the cost of printing them in this period. Well, also, you know, there is... A, we've reflected on this in the, in the Hopcast in recent weeks and, and months, is that, you know, there is a paper shortage. Uh, there are uh, shortages of certain inks and, and, and different types of foil and stuff that you make covers from and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's getting harder and harder and slower and slower to get these things printed. And, and indeed, most of the traditional publishers will know these books are coming 18 months to two years and will have booked in print runs but i think that they're they're getting risk averse yeah the the highlight of the of the uh, october the 13th release list is uh, 
Ian Rankin's latest Rebus novel. Oh, right, OK. Uh, the 24th of those. And he's done that twice before to release it on the biggest day of the year and gone uh, to number one. OK, so the readers are expecting his next one then, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you know, as ever with this bookseller article, it's just a list of celebrities who've written books. Um, it is regarded by the traditional industry as a surefire winner to have a celebrity name against a book title. And the one that I will be avoiding, like the plague, uh, is Gabby Logan's The First Half. You have to remind me who... I know the name. Well, she presents... She's a BBC Sport presenter. She she was anchoring the women's football coverage this this summer. And it says here, will undoubtedly get a boost after her tub-thumping sign-off following the Lionesses triumph at the UEFA Women's European Football Championship. Uh, I really have a lot of issues with Miss Logan, Ms. Logan, um, on a professional basis. So I, I will not be buying that book. But they, these are the sort of books, though, aren't they, that people buy for other people thinking, oh, my brother mm, mm. has been watching the football. I'll buy that. Yeah, yeah thinking, no, absolutely. Without no, no. thinking. Well, no, exactly. <laughs> Um, uh, there is a book by Hugh Bonneville coming out, which I think would be quite good. Uh, it's called Playing Under the Piano, which I guess will be his memoir. Yeah, it's a bit like me reading under the dining table. Yeah, uh, that'll be good. Um, there's lots of children's stuff that's coming out. There's, there's uh, new titles from Julia Donaldson. Oh, are, oh, the um, um, uh, Gruffalo lady. Yes. Yeah, she's got a new illustrator. But oh, uh, oh yeah, I think the previous one passed away. Oh really? Yes, I didn't I think know so. that. Yeah, I think so. Oh, I'm sad. Yeah. Um, so yeah, working with somebody else, but those are going to do well. And then um, there, you know, it's it's interesting just seeing how many celebrities are sort of being signed up to do books, and you know, any question whether they've actually written them. Um, all sorts of things like that. It's, it's, it's the my cynicism is is rife at the moment. Anyway, uh, that's a bit of a downer to to finish the show. But we ought to just reflect on on what we're going to be doing this week. We've got the the kids are going off to their dads shortly. Yeah, later today for the week, um, which gives us the sort of the theoretical corridor where we can make strides in catching up with all the stuff that needs doing. <laughs> uh, we did our shopping list last night of all the things that that, that uh, are building up uh, with urgency. Uh, and then the medium term list, which I would describe as next week, uh, is also full. So it's going to be busy for us uh, at, at Hobeck Towers with, without question. But we'll, we'll squeeze in a bit of tennis and let's hope the weather just gives up and starts raining well, for a bit. It already feels a teeny tiny bit cooler today. It's still quite muggy, but and it's quite clouded over as we sit here looking outside. So there's hope. Yeah. I, I hate to, to say this to you, but I did read that the heat wave will end in thunderstorms. And I know how much wait, wait, they wait, terrify wait, you. Wait, 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 when? <laughs> Today. Uh, no, it's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> Sweetheart. You can go and hide in my studio. No. It'll, it'll... Oh, I can, I can take a, a, a bottle of wine into your studio. Yeah, it, it, will, it, will, it will diminish the impact. You, <gasps> will, you will hear much, much less. That would be fantastic. Yeah, that's why I bought it, really. Oh, I feel so much better. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us on the Hobcast. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Don't forget, if you wish to find out anything about our company, Hobeck Books, go to our website, www.hobeck.net. And we have uh, our sales pages there for audiobooks, 
and also for paperback copies. And, of course, we will get our authors to sign if you wish to buy a book and get a, a dedication for someone or someone else or for yourself, then we can sort that all out for you. Or rose petals if you want. Yeah, we might go that far. <laughs> Where we get them from, I don't know. The garden? Most... No, because the, most of the roses are dying in the heat. Do you know, we live, what, two or three miles from a confetti farm. Yeah, but it, did you see any confetti? I, when we drove past it the other day on the way back from Devon, they have no confetti. Oh, I was reading my book. All the plants have died. <laughs> I, didn't, I don't even remember passing it. Uh, you know, the, the, the harvest has failed for the confetti, the natural confetti farm. But all the people getting married. Yeah, there's not really. That's really tragic. I know, I know. That's a drought for you. And on that bombshell, <laughs> we'll leave you. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And we'd like to thank you for joining us. Uh, don't forget to subscribe also to the Hobcast if you've enjoyed the show, uh, wherever you get your podcasts from. But from both of us, we'd like to wish you a wonderful, warm, uh, not so hot, creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.